All right. Welcome back to another episode of Finding Peaks. Um, Brandon Burns, host, uh, CEO of Peaks Recovery Center, is joined here today again uh, with my friend here, Jason Friesma, Chief Clinical Officer, and my other friend, uh, Clint Nicholson, Chief Operating Officer. Kind of backup friend. Yeah. Kind of backup friend. <laughs> backup friend. I'll take it. Yeah. 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 It's a heavy hitting episode Absolutely. before we yeah. dive into these. Yeah. yeah. Feelers aside, um, again, welcome back. Uh, so today we are going to try and start a series of episodes about um, or the differences between the grayness of uh, delivering services that are abstinence-based as approach, but also starting to inform the idea and talk about it, um, self-harm, or self-harm, excuse me, harm reduction principles That'd be the opposite. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Harm reduction principles um, and the approach to care and what that looks like. So within this industry, uh, it's a seemingly contentious topic because of all of the grayness that exists within it and say when it's right uh, to follow the abstinence lens or when it's right to you know, um, say you have a heroin addiction, for example, to allow for time uh, a year or two to pass before starting to entertain maybe what it would be like to have a drink. Um, and uh, so we're going to start, I think, from the ground up as an important aspect of this to create some de definitions around this. And as we go through this, um, because it's a heavy hitting topic, we would love to uh, hear questions, feedback, comments, concerns, and anything that we can help um, bridge any gaps that might be experienced on the, on the user's end in that regard. So um, going back now, I think, to 1935, 1938, again in there somewhere, where um, the big book was written um, that informed uh, the room's 12-step uh, approach to um, individual wellness um, and abstinence. Um, Jason, tee us off. History, how did we get here? Okay, uh, how did we get here? So historically, uh, well, really back in the 1930s, there was really no treatment for substance use. Uh, there was treatment of the symptoms of having other medical problems. And so really, people ended up in the hospital for a month, got out, went right back out on the street. No resources, of course, uh, no real social work uh, options, no real... Uh, possibilities. And so um, from that history uh, developed the, the AA model and the founding fathers of AA and writing the AA big book. And really um, from that came this, this really, uh, well, the, the 12 traditions and the 12 steps from AA, which really encouraged people to begin to work a recovery process and somewhere along the way, there uh, came coins. Uh, I, don't, I don't actually know the history of the coin, um, mm -hmm. to be honest with you, and where, they, where that entered into the AA uh, process. But where um, a metric of measurement was how long somebody was free from their, well, from drinking. And, uh, and then down the road even further after that came from drinking and drug use. And, uh, and that was, uh, this token became um, something critically important to strive for, to gain 30 days of sobriety, uh, to gain two months and three months and six months and nine months and a year and then 18 months and then every year after that. Uh, 
And celebrating that, indicating that I have not taken any drink or had any drug in this amount of time. And on top of that, then uh, our profession formed or began to treat uh, um, substance use kind of following a similar model where, where the entire goal of substance use treatment was to get somebody clean and sober and a measurement of success with that would be for the rest of their life, never use another drug. Um, and what's really nice about that model is it's really pretty black or white, uh, black and white. Um, you're, either, you're either doing it or you're not doing it. You're either putting heroin, alcohol, meth, coke into your body or you're not. Um, and if you're not, you're successful. And if you are, you're not successful. And you have to start over uh, with going down the journey of getting your coins. And, and again, it creates the unintended consequence of that, or the, maybe the intended consequence is it's really clear. Black and white, if you use again, um, you're off track. Uh, and you have to start over, and if you don't use, you're being successful. Um, however, uh, that black and white thinking, it does create a little bit, it, a thing that weaves its way into the AA cultures. Um, coming out of uh, alcoholism, you have to admit that you are an alcoholic. You have to say, I am an alcoholic, and my life is unmanageable. And um, in saying I am an alcoholic, um, it, begin, it began what we now know with, with the emerging research on shame, it's a little bit, well, shaming to say I am, and then putting anything after that that, that is less than uh, kind to oneself, that's a little bit of a shame message that, that I am this. And so the unintended consequence, I guess, of, of kind of having an absence-based uh, thinking or mentality is that, well, I am this and I need to accept that. And since I am this, it's kind of this unchangeable part of me, that I'm an alcoholic today, and in 10 years I'll be an alcoholic, whether or not I have anything to drink. Um, and again, it, 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 it served, it has served, and is serving uh, a huge and important uh, role in Lane. Coming from nothing, this has been incredibly useful and helpful in um, gaining sobriety, uh, or for people to gain sobriety and gain uh, and, and work a program um, that helped them step out of using. Um, I would say, too, out of that tradition, well, came the 12 traditions, which really talked about this AA thing. Nobody can profit from it. Nobody runs it. The meetings are self-supportive. Um, <clears throat> and it really built uh, this amazing community of people that attended AA meetings and, and began to get sober um, so it's to me, like when I look at AA, honestly, as an outsider, it's this really interesting contrast that like there are, there's this aspect of AA that does set up, um, this like all or nothing mentality. But on top of that, there's this amazing, uh, community and culture that, that brings people up and brings people within and nurtures them through uh, through early recovery. And so, I don't know, there's just this contrast there. And, and uh, I find that to be really interesting and curious. But anyway, that's where, that's where kind of this, where an abstinence-based model came from. It, it came from a grassroots uh, uh, up <laughs> origin, has a grassroots origin story. And it came from uh, people getting together in community 
and holding each other accountable to stay sober. Yeah, one of the things that I've seen or that seems to be commonplace within our industry, uh, it, especially within the past few years, though it's softening, is there, what manifested out of that is that there is this sort of moral deficit that's having. And we haven't generally coined it as, um, in the science, scientific terms, as a craving state that's driving those um, addictive behaviors um, full stop. And then, so when we think about somebody who's using opioids, then you have the, um, you know, the invention and brought to market um, Suboxone and Sublocade and all of these other components to it, but there was this immediate rejection from an abstinence-based culture. It felt like, especially you know, coming out of the rooms, that oh, well, now you're just using another substance, and it seems to bring back that sort of shaming component of it that you're different and it's not the same. And true recovery looks like this, but. And this is also where we're trying to balance for the viewer here the transition about the education of abstinence and then how we get to something called a harm reduction model um, and all of this. And how do we do it amicably and how do we preserve both because both are important in approaches to recovery journeys. Um, but it's no longer true in the sense of things, at least for me it feels like, that one way is the only way. And so in sort of lightly bridging that gap from what you described brilliantly there, and thank you for the abstinence side of things. Let's start with sort of a, a ground up definition of what um, harm reduction looks yeah. like. Well, I think, um, yeah, great description of abstinence base. And I, you know, when we talk about the 12 step model and AA and the big book and NA and C and all of those uh, different organizations, I think it's, it really is a story of unintended consequences because the other part of um, what happened with AA is it, it is, it's about addicts helping addicts, right? Peers helping peers. And because that was the only treatment for so long, that actually helped to start shape addiction treatment in general, where addiction treatment became very, very different from mental health treatment. So we're uh, in, to be, uh, you know, in a, to be perceived as an effective uh, addiction counselor, uh, the, it was really about are you an addict or in recovery or not yeah. versus do you have a degree and have you been trained in these skills and then these foundational, these mental health foundational principles. Um, and so there was a big disparity between the mental health world and the addiction treatment world. And now that disparity is definitely being, that, that bridge is being um, closed very, very quickly uh, because I think there's an awareness now that we've, uh, as our understanding of addiction is more, um, sophisticated and our approaches to mental health become more sophisticated. I think that um, we ended up with something that looks more like the harm reduction model, which takes into account this a much more much more of a mental health approach to addiction treatment, which is this idea that you need to meet your client where they are. Like so, wherever a person is in their willingness and ability to change that is actually where you meet the person, and then that is where you develop the intervention strategies to support that person. Versus in an abstinence-based model, it's either you're going to quit everything or you're not going to be a client, or you're not gonna be successful. Versus in, a, um, in the harm reduction model, it's much more of a spectrum where it, it recognizes that I may be an alcoholic, and I, but I may not be ready to quit drinking, however, I want to do something to make this less impactful on my life, to make uh, less of a negative impact on my life. And so that's where harm reduction comes in. And it's uh, a good example of a harm reduction model is um, like a needle exchange for IV opiate users or um, 
um, methamphetamine users. It's the, this idea that you know, these addicts may not be ready to quit their substance. Uh, at the same time, there are ways and interventions and strategies that we can support them, we can support families, and we can support most overall the community uh, by providing them with clean needles, by um, mitigating the amount of like, bacterial infection and infectious diseases that spread within the community uh, to help eliminate some of the burden on the, um, on the medical field and um, trying to limit the amount of emergency room visits that people have to go into. So it's a much more, it takes a much more broad spectrum approach and it really does focus on the idea of in any form of mental health treatment, you have to start with where the client is and their readiness and willingness to change. And if you start above that, uh, it's the, the options or opportunity for success are greatly decreased or diminished. So. But I think the, the word I would put in there with the needle exchange is you meet people where they are. That's like the definition of empathy, yeah. right? It's saying, I acknowledge that this is where you are and you right. don't need you know, to put the drugs down to receive some care and some compassion. Um, we'll just we'll be right here with you. Right. And, and really, it kind of when you were talking about um, the history of good substance use counselors had to kind of come from an addiction background in their personal life, really what studies have found, what's way more predictive is the empathy, yeah. the capacity for empathy of a right. clinician, not what their background is yeah. and what, what's behind them. And, and I think that's the link uh, that, that you're talking about with that harm reduction. Absolutely, level. and I think the irony is that you would expect the empathy to be greater from, to go from addict to addict. <laughs> However, what I think a lot of times happens is it, it becomes sympathy, right? Because mm -hmm. that addict who's or in pity. recovery looks down upon that other person and recognizes that they're in pain and that feels as though they have the path to give them to, to get better versus actually meeting the client where they are and saying, all right, what is your... We need to create a path together. You know, like your path is going to be different than my path. It's going to be different than this next person's path and this next person's path. You know, that is the complication of uh, there of addiction. There are no two addictions that are alike, and so there is not one equation that is going to help uh, addict that you can just kind of plug an addict into and expect a positive outcome. So we get into this more open gray world of. Um, different intervention strategies that are much more geared towards improving the, the overall wellness and um, quality of life of the individual, rather than focusing on these sort of hard definitions of what it means to be in recovery or what it means to be in sober. Absolutely. And just putting on my CEO hat here yeah. and building a little bit of tension into the conversation about this is about how this industry behaved in this transition. It, out of the gates, out of the late 80s, started charging people, an insurance company, thousands and thousands of dollars for treatment through the AA model. And so it created this unnecessary tension between something that was by itself peer-driven, sophisticated in its approach, and free from the very beginning. And so it started to make treatment look kind of silly because we're just charging money for something that is available right. to anybody and everybody um, with a willingness to change, right, right. in that regard. Absolutely. And so this industry, you know, when you, when you go to other, it's still happening today, when you go to people's websites, they'll say something like, well, we're providing a holistic model of care here, but we're abstinence-based. That is not holistic, I mean, full stop, and it doesn't allow for 
an industry that really needs to, through a treatment, through the science of things, to approach the individual and meet them strictly where they're at. And it puts this unnecessary pressure, I think, on family systems, and I think, in my experience of it, it's kind of put them on their toes. Like, if Johnny comes home and flinches in the wrong way, then it's all for nothing, and it's not successful. And it's created this um, really unfortunate black and white language that I think distances us from the individual who's really struggling um, in a really um, significant way. And so I just wanted to, you know, sort of bring that in, in up, up front and center to honor the traditions, the 12 steps, the rooms, and the meetings that this industry did something really inappropriate. And it missed a great opportunity to work with those programs and then also do something more significant along the lines of the harm reduction model and meeting people where they're at and then um, utilize its strength as an industry to help bridge those gaps and ensure different conversations and insights into um, you know, the suffering that comes about through addiction, but I love the mental health piece as well to it. So, um, and just curious too, in, in your guys' time here within this industry, you know, what aspects of working within addiction treatment have you seen, you know, maybe inconsistencies as an abstinence-based approach or, you know, the thriving of a harm reduction approach or missteps within a harm reduction approach as we, you know, bridge as an industry? Um, or anything maybe more too yeah. that we can, we know what the industry's done wrong here, or maybe even the better question is, what do we see it doing right now? Well, the, the, I, I think the issue is that there's this, there are camps, right? right? Like, exactly. I mean, I've done this for so long. Like, I've been asked hundreds of times if I'm an addict by clients coming in. And uh, I have kind of a lengthy response I give to that. Um, when I'm feeling a little more curt or angry, I, I say this is the only field where that's asked. Like I don't, my colleagues who do domestic violence treatment aren't asked if they beat their wives. Uh, like it's literally the only spot where it's asked like, is like a litmus test. Like the only way you have anything valuable for me is whether if you have a similar experience to me. Um, and to me that is that, that model of like, um, well, it, 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 that's less charitable because I think what people were asking is like, I need empathy. Yeah. <laughs> I need somebody to just sit with me in this. Like, I need help and I need hope. Um, and so once I learned how to deliver that message, like, I could quickly move beyond, like, whether what my own personal history is or not. So um, that, that's always been a weird tension for me. I don't know if that answers your question, Brandon, but... Yeah, I think, I think that that's a, a really interesting point. And, um, you know, there's, as far as, my experience has primar primarily been in the harm reduction field, actually. So I've um, worked in uh, medication-assisted treatment for a really long time and had a lot of exposure with that. And I think that that's a whole other topic that we'll address at some other point. Um, but I, so the, the, what I like about the harm reduction model personally is that it actually, because it's a spectrum, it includes abstinence. It recognizes that there is a moment in time where abstinence is not only uh, important, but it's vital to the success and the well-being and the stability of the individual. It just doesn't insist upon it right away. It doesn't say that this is the only place where we're going to start and then this is where we're going to end up. It recognizes that the journey is going to be wild and crazy and there are going to be relapses and there are going to be complications and there are going to be triggers and, there, and there's going to be maybe multiple treatment episodes in order for somebody to really grasp what's going on. But what it does by, by having that openness and that ability 
ability to sort of expand and, and be more creative in its navigation, it really does what Jason talked about at the very beginning, it decreases that shame. Like it doesn't reiterate this idea that if I do these 12 steps and I'm sober for 90 days and then I relapse, I have failed in my treatment. It doesn't have that option. It realizes that things, life is more complicated than success and failure, and that failure is an opportunity for growth. Um, so I really, so for me, that's what the most exciting aspect of um, harm reduction is. I, I think as far as what the industry or the harm reduction uh, field may be missing is their ability to communicate that message effectively. Yeah, I just think that it's been... I don't know that people really recognize and understand what harm reduction actually means and, and how, it, how it impacts and helps people. I think that it, a lot of times people just feel like it's an excuse to, you're just allowing people to still use drugs so you're not helping them at all. And not really um, kind of uh, changing or adapting people's lenses to better understand exactly what it means to be in recovery and what it means to be helped. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I like and I love the idea too, uh, the concept of you know it having different starting points. I think we talked about it several episodes ago. Uh, episodes ago, we also talked about being on a track and everybody kind of doing their own mm -hmm. thing, directionally uh, focused, of course. But I think you know when I run into you know clients as well too, when we're talking about things like the twelve steps, you know, secular folks are going to have a resistance to, especially steps two and three, and finding higher powers and that sort of thing. But I feel like you know. Um, not often talked about, but the bridge in there is the harm reduction principle. It allows us to see the steps, not in so much black and whiteness, but as opportunities for exploration into Absolutely. different things, whether you know, it's a Buddhist mindset or a Buddhist approach to care, um, uh, the Dharma um, in mm -hmm. that regard. And so it feels like when we start sort of you know, bringing them together you know, contextually and in, and in practice, we're actually getting a lot more out of both flavors. And I think that's a really exciting yeah, piece and that this industry, if it can move from the camps and start bringing its tents closer together and stand outside and start a fire together, absolutely. we probably get a lot closer to something meaningful and help bridge this gap in a really significant way. And you know, for me personally, that's just something I, I would love to see embraced in this industry. And it's also something that, um, and why this conversation is so important right now um, and as we go through these next few episodes. So, um, you know, with that said, any, any closing words before we get a little bit more uh, vocal about this and <laughs> insert ourselves and be vulnerable in the topic? Well, I think the only thing I wanted to add after what you just said is you, you, you mentioned the camps and really it's way more of a Venn diagram if we can mm. get out of our camps. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more... Like, especially initially, like, helping people get out of their immediate suffering, like, who doesn't want to do that? Like, I, it, there's a lot more common ground there, uh, and it's pretty fertile, I would say. Yeah. yeah, again, I think for me as a clinician, it's exciting to, to see the opportunity for what this can mean for the field of addiction and how this really expands, our, uh, expands the ability and capacity for us to be able to help people not only more effectively, but more of them. So I'm really, uh, for me, it's exciting to be a part of this conversation. And it is, yeah, moving forward, I anticipate the vulnerability will be um, tough to navigate at yeah. times. Uh, um, and there may be some, I don't know, some very hot topics that get brought up and people might feel burned. But I just, for me, I think the, the important thing is that having this conversation, regardless, is all about helping people. It's all about being able to provide a level of care and treatment that helps addicts live better lives. 
Absolutely. So as we move forward, um, we just want to recognize there is an absolute sensitivity to this uh, topic, but it's a sensitivity um, that's worth exploring in all of this. So if we say things in you know, our future episodes and so forth that are discomforting or did you mean to say that, um, please ask questions, send your comments and so forth so that um, we can continue to support the discussion and make clear what we're trying to um, say about these things moving forward. So thanks again for joining us. If you've only joined us um, by video in the past, um, you're welcome to get into Spotify, download our podcast. Um, you can go to Peak's uh, site as well, too, to find um, our video and podcast sessions and so forth. Um, there's just plenty of ways to listen to us um, in that regard. And so find us. And uh, thanks for being with us, and we'll see you soon.